Okay, uh, welcome to this very special third part of our three-part podcast series with Thinking the Digital Learning Experts. Previously, we talked in episode one a lot about collaborative and social learning. Episode two, uh, learning design. And today, we are going to talk about learning analytics. So, once again, welcoming Steve Finch, Head of Customer Success at Thinky, and Chris Gadd, founder of How to Accelerate Learning, uh, to the podcast today. Um, and my first question, Steve, I'm going to put this to you first. Uh, we talk about what we should measure being performance focused and not content driven. Should we ever be content driven? Are there any exceptions to this? What's your take on this? Yeah, for sure. I don't think it's a binary answer on this one. You know, where we say performance focused, uh, it's, it's probably because historically we haven't been as performance focused as we've needed to be. And there's so much that L&D can do. And that performance is, uh, you know, more closely attributed to, to business goals. And it's about that drive to become more, more focused on business goals. But it doesn't mean that content-driven is something to ignore. You know, pretty much all organizations still have compliance requirements. They still require stuff to be done as opposed to there being a measurable outcome from the learning that's, that's done. So there's plenty of scenarios where content-driven works and and still has has to be it's not a case of one or the other so you know an example is is compliance driven um learning where uh, people just have to do it and the business has to show that it's been done um but also again going back to what we spoke about before with bloom's taxonomy where we're defining the learning verbs of what is the outcome from this learning and it could be that knowledge um acquisition is that um is the outcome so content um, is, is key to that. And also, you know, we discussed before about different modes of blended learning and content can often do the heavy lifting. You know, content can do the stuff where the learner is left to do it at their own pace as opposed to it, someone standing up in front and doing a chalk and talk. So, you know, that can be converted into content and content that can be consumed as part of a blended learning course. So I don't think the answer is uh, binary um, and there's still room for content. What's your thoughts, Chris? Well, I might be a little bit contentious here, just a little bit. Um, I'm not disagreeing with you, but what I, but I'm just like thinking of an example of like um, perhaps data protection. And if you are looking at the levels of learning, so somebody, for instance, who's just new to the organisation. You just need them to know what it is they need to know so that you can tick the boxes most of all. But let's imagine you sort of like have a little performance enhancement to it. Like, think, how could you use that data to the best purpose? You know, what would you do? How do you look after it best? And then another layer of learning could be, for instance, like a, a line manager needs to know much more about data protection than, say, a new recruit. And again, how do you look after that data to the best advantage so that you're gathering data about your team or, you know, or your, your analytics? to do with customers or whatever and then I suppose the highest level of learning if you're looking at Bloom's taxonomy would be your, your data protection officer as well and and again it's like how do you leverage it so I'm not saying I disagree with you Steve but I'm sort of like saying yeah if you're going to be doing some training why not see how else you might actually add some layers to it what are your thoughts about that Steve? Yeah I, 
I'm on the same page with you. I think there's an ideal, uh, an idealism, isn't there, that every piece of learning has some value in that uh, behavior will, will change for the better, um, thus lead, leading it to be performance focused. It'd be great if compliance learning actually had more of a measurable outcome than just ticking the box. But that often involves uh, an investment from the organization into that and to how important it is. I think that starts to, if, if there's a purpose to things like data protection, GDPR and various things where it's actually part of someone's job role to have expertise in that area, I think it starts to move away from being compliance and tick box and more about performance and behavior led. So it starts to move itself into a different category, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, another another type of compliance, you know, health and safety as well. You know, we've all had to watch those health and safety videos, but then you could have, you know, as an organisation, um, a goal to reduce the number of um, accidents or near misses or whatever. Do you know what I mean? So again, there's a there's a twist to it in a way, in that you know you could be as I said, killing two birds with one stone, you could be enhancing what you do. And if you were doing that, I wonder, would that, would that mean that the attitude of um, employees would change towards compliance training? Because I know when I worked in an organization and we had to do compliance training, it was always like with droopy shoulders and like a, a sulky face on, you know, because you didn't really want to do it because you just had to look out for the answers to the questions in the quiz that you knew you were going to get at the end so that you could answer them properly. But if you knew that it had some other purpose, would that mean that people were more engaged? I think that's it. It's the relevance of learning. When we talk about engagement, one of the big things is about how relevant that learning is to the individual. And then it's aligning the business needs with the individual's needs. Typically, compliance is, uh, you know, the tick box exercise. It's for the business's liability that basically they need to show that that box has been ticked so they're not liable in case any scenario happens that involves that and typically health and safety. So if you're, um, you know, just working in an office, health and safety is kind of a tick box thing, isn't it? But if you're working in a warehouse, things like manual handling and health and safety are aligned to your job, so are relevant. So maybe in those scenarios where the relevance of it is more important to that job role, then it's worthwhile the organization investing more time and effort into making that learning good and the experience good because they're actually looking for measurable behavior change as a result of it. Well, interesting that you mentioned measurable behavior change here because let's talk about kind of the, the fundamental building blocks of uh, what analytics is all about and that's metrics. Um, we sort of touched on it as well um, about vanity metrics. So, this is, you know, the, the very basics of bums on seats or the digital equivalent of that. Uh, Chris, what should L&D teams be avoiding when it comes to vanity metrics? Well, I suppose, you know, you can sort of think to yourself, well, what do bums on seats actually mean? Um, is it a measure of the learning or performance outcome? Um, how many no-shows did you get? I remember when I was an employee development officer and we used to count the number of no-shows as well. And that was a, a metric we used to share at the end of the month. Um, 
how popular, how, how was the uh, trainer received as well? You know, what average score did they get? You know, and we're all, we were all looking for a one, you know, that was the highest sort of score that you could get. And um, are they actually useful or not? And I suppose my thinking has sort of um, changed over the years a little bit about it because I am very much sort of um, performance focused and the things that you should be measuring, you know, uh, how, how is it actually affecting the organization and what could you measure and everything. But if you're in a really big organization and um, you just started measuring something and found that things were not coming out exactly as you'd hoped for, that it was failing somewhat, maybe some of these vanity metrics, as we call them, might be indicators as to, to, to what's going wrong. So if you suddenly see there's a whole load of no-shows or if you suddenly see a drop in bums on seats, you might be alerted to the fact of what's going on here. And if you've got a very large organization with thousands of employees, you're not going to be able to necessarily always have your finger on the pulse. So maybe some of these vanity metrics in large organizations are actually almost like um, an indicator um, of, of what might be going on and what might be going wrong. And so I don't think you should necessarily avoid them. I just don't think that's the only thing that we should be measuring, you know, so bums on seats, if that's the only measure that you do, I think it's a waste of time because that's why L&D don't always get the reputation it deserves. And that's why sometimes um, L&D is the first budget to be cut because we're not measuring what's important to the organization. But I think there's a place for these metrics, you know, how much engagement have you had? And if you've got some online learning, you know, how long do people stay um, engaged with the learning? So again, if it's a large organization and you suddenly notice that it used to be that people would stay on this the full half hour, and now it's like, three minutes or whatever, you need to find out what's going on. Um, it might not be something that's going wrong with the learning. It might be something else that's going on in the um, organization. And, and I think that's the key thing is that um, you've got to be able to distinguish what, um, what's the purpose of this bit of data? What might it actually tell you? Because data never tells you the full story. It tells you an aspect of a story. And so some of these metrics, um, you know, are telling us something, but not the whole thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does make sense. Um, sorry, Steve, uh, carry on. I was just going to say, Chris is sort of um, giving us a little bit of a case for vanity metrics, but um, it's obviously more of a nuanced picture. So where, where, how would you build on that? So I guess this is, um, this is a big piece, isn't it? Um, vanity metrics, as, as Chris so, so rightly put it, is one step towards uh, the important stuff. And uh, we shouldn't necessarily discard it because you need to take that step. If, for example, you look at level one of Kirkpatrick's uh, model, it's about reaction. So getting a positive reaction is the, the start. It's it allows you to move to the next level. So you've got to get engagement. You've, you've, you know, you've got to have people respond to stuff in a positive way so that they can complete it and do it and then, you know, get, get an outcome from it. So it does have to be done. Um, 
And quite often, you know, the first steps in rolling out a learning program is about driving engagement. It's about those activity stats, which is just about have they done it? Have they responded? Have they turned up? Have they engaged? Um, and it's just a stepping stone. You have to get that right to go on to the next ones. But um, why it ends there quite often is that almost that propensity people have a fear of objective results. You know, delivering the traditional sort of chalk and talk, you hand out the happy sheets, you, you know you're going to get a pretty good response because people are forced to do it in that position and they just want to do it and get it out of the way. So they're going to gild the lily, as it were. And then that's used as the, the measure to show whether that learning is effective or not. And uh, traditional trainers would just lean on that as a crutch as opposed to want to move towards objective results with the fear that that it might not tell a pretty picture um so stopping them from getting to that next step that next step is um about baselining um and having those objective measures so that you can have an honest conversation about what's working and what isn't working you know, even those engagement results, is it working? Are people turning up? Are people actually doing it? At least you can ask those questions why. It gives you a challenge, a problem to try and solve. And that's what L&D is about. You can't be afraid to baseline your stats because that's going to give you your roadmap for what you need to work on. It clarifies to you what needs to be fixed or what's the, the, the priority. If you can then break that down, uh, you know, prioritizing based on where the low results are or the low numbers are, zoom in on that and employ strategies step by step to demonstrate progression. It takes some of the fear out of it, breaking it down into, into bite-sized steps. But quite often there's a reticence to go beyond that initial reaction because it's easy to get a positive results on that and report that back to the business. Uh, what's your thoughts, Chris? I, well, um, I was just thinking as you were speaking there, when you, when you mentioned the word fear, um, that could be down to culture as well, why people are fearful of measuring things. Um, there may be a number of reasons why people don't measure the right things. First of all, there may be um, not knowing what it is, where to start, um, not having the skills to be able to analyze the data, but also it may be the culture because when you actually get the data, um, and let's say it does say that it's not been a success, what is going to, the response going to be? You know, is it the sort of culture that would use that data then to sort of like beat you around the head with? Or is it the sort of culture where you would objectively look at it and say, okay, well, this hasn't worked well, but what can we do better? You know, it depends very much on the culture that you are in within the organization. And so part of that fear may be coming from that culture. Yeah, completely agree. And that drives that sort of behavior that people will only want to publish vanity stats for fear of the repercussion. Um, and then it's kind of uh, almost a self-fulfilling prophecy that that method is just replicated. It's almost like they don't want to uncover the truth because they don't want it to be known. But you, you're, you're right about the culture. I think um, that's the, probably the biggest driving force in, in an organization. There's a, there's a responsibility on L&D, I guess, to rip the Band-Aid off a little bit because maybe the rest of the business doesn't know what they don't know. And L&D needs to prove itself to be more objective. Um, there's got to be a bit of courage, a bit of bravery in there to go to objective stats and be able to 
sell that to the business as something that, that they need to do something about because the factors that improve that, if that stat is poor or that output is poor, whether it's engagement is low or, or the actual completion of stuff is low or even the behavior change is low, it's not always L&D's um, you know, fault, as it were. It could be environmental. It's that people aren't given enough time to learn in their in their working day or their working week. It could be that access to the technology is poor, is that they don't have the devices or a decent internet connection to be able to access it. You know, there could be a number of environmental and uh, factors that play into those um, poor results that the business needs to be made aware of because they can do something about. And it isn't always on L and D of why those stats are, are low. And I think you're sort of um, touching on something which, again, has struck me about this whole thing is that uh, whose responsibility is to actually um, collect the data, analyze the data, and to report on the data? Is it actually learning development's responsibility to do that? Um, if L&D are working um, with the right stakeholders um, and doing the things that the stakeholders need to uh, make performance enhancements, then surely those stakeholders will be wanting to measure. They will have access to the numbers and the data and it should make it easier rather than L&D because L&D doesn't always have the numbers you know, um, at the fingertips. Uh, in terms of performance, it's actually the stakeholders that do. So is there something missing in some of the relationships with L&D and stakeholders that mean that um, they're not getting access to the data or maybe that they're not being helped to measure the data as well? I think this is um, one of those things we've talked about in previous discussions is about the needs and the, the skills that modern L&D practitioners need to have. And one of those is, uh, is collaboration. And the other one is, is analytics. And those two kind of go hand in hand. You know, if you get the collaboration right, then you can find people in the organization who can lend a hand with the analytics because Although it's not completely on L&D, I think L&D needs to move out of that sort of siloed um, sort of cost center model and get away from there just being a perception that L&D just does training. Um, if they can start to demonstrate the benefit and the value of L&D to other business units, then they can strike up a collaboration where they can get access to more data, get access to more experience in analyzing data and just be able to show the value that L&D can bring to those other departments and to the business as a whole. Um, and this is about measuring the outputs and moving to objectivity and showing that, uh, you know, the things beyond just the completion of learning, things like uh, knowledge transfer and behavior change, which are the things that impact the business as a whole. And those are the sort of conversations that they need to have with, with other departments. And, and isn't that part of the, the move when you're talking about the modern L&D professional? Isn't that about being more strategic as an L&D professional as well? I mean, when I became a trainer and I say I became a trainer, I was an IT trainer. I didn't think about, you know, doing any needs analysis, even talk. I knew best because I was going to just, you know, do the training that um, people needed at that particular level. There was no sort of strategic thought about, you know, who 
our customers were and what their biggest problems were, anything like that. And so it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a departure sort of like, you know, for, for learning development professionals and training professionals to be thinking more strategically. But is that what you're saying is needed as well, Steve? Yeah, for sure. Just switching from doing chalk and talk in a classroom with happy sheets and then moving to devising a collaborative strategy across the business with other units to identify business need, um, do a diagnostic to find the gaps and then devise a learning program to address those gaps. It's a, it's a pretty big leap. Um, but, you know, I guess it's the taking the baby steps. I, I think the first rip in the Band-Aid off comes from just trying to move to more objective measures of, of the learning. But, yeah, uh, ultimately, L&D needs to become more strategic so that it can sit at the table with the marketing department, the sales department, and those other ones that the business looks at for a return on investment. You know, business typically invests in marketing and looks for a return and investment, a measurable return, similarly with sales. And so it can have that dialogue. So it will invest more in those departments if it's seeing a return. Um, L&D doesn't typically get to have that seat at the table. And in order to do that, it needs to become more strategic. It needs to have goals that are aligned with business improvement as opposed to just the delivery and completion of training. When we were putting... Uh, actually, I'll go back to just what we were talking about there. So I think what we have kind of uncovered is that there is a place for vanity metrics and it's part of the baselining that is so essential to, uh, you know, decent deep dive analytics. But um, but vanity metrics are kind of a first step and shouldn't just be um, the only thing that we're talking about here. But when we were putting these questions together for this third episode, um, there was a mention of triangulation. Now, it's a word I'm familiar with, but not to you know particularly in this context so steve can you give us a brief explainer about what it is and also what the importance of it in context of learning analytics is i'd like to defer that question to chris actually <laughs> i thought you were going to do that um triang <laughs> triangulation comes from um map reading you know like if you've ever been hill walking um they, and used a map to do it um if you have only got one reference point if you're lost and you're looking around the landscape and you can only find one reference point you can't exactly locate where you are on the map um if you've got um two points you've got a a, a much better and if you've got three you can find out exactly where you are um on the map so it's a it's a the same principle if you if all you ever do in terms of gathering data or doing a needs analysis uh, to get that baseline if all you ever do is have just a conversation with um, you know one set of stakeholders let's say then you're just getting part of the picture you don't get the full view and you don't get to find out exactly where you are on that map. Uh, once you start to take different perspectives, uh, maybe you're gathering data from different places, not just having conversations. So we're talking about 
um, also mixing qualitative and quantitative data. Um, once you start to gather data from different sources, it means you're building up a bigger picture. Um, so for instance, you know, if you are starting off and somebody has said to you, well, there's a problem in customer service, um, then you might start looking at some of the data, you know, some of the hard figures to give you some sort of clue as to where things might be going wrong. But that's only one perspective. And then what you do is you might then follow that up with um, some qualitative data, some opinions from people to find out if that's actually true. Because the first bit where you're looking through the numbers and you might do like a red, amber, green analysis in a spreadsheet or whatever, but you might be looking at, you, it, it's, it's really to point you in the direction of where things might be going wrong. And from that point, what you do is you, you create a hypothesis. Oh, I think this is probably this is what's happening. And so then you look for other data to support that hypothesis. So triangulation is about using more than one data source. Um, and it's a mixture of qualitative and quantitative data as well. Does that help? That does help. Yes, definitely. Um, Steve, can you add to that? Or, or should we move on to our final question about tips for analytics? Yeah, I think they uh, just uh, adding on to that mix of qualitative and quantitative. You know, if you look at different learning evaluation models, we've talked about this a little bit in in the past about finding a model that works for you because ultimately, you know, there's there's already models out there that you can use and incorporate into your practice. I already mentioned Kirkpatrick, Kirkpatrick Phillips. You got the Anderson model and things like the Brinkerhoff success case method as well and some of these explore uh, you know that use of quantitative and qualitative uh, analytics and really trying to get a whole picture of it to identify you know what's working what isn't working and then laying down a model for what it is that you need to measure I think that's the the thing that, that we're getting to here is what is it that you need to measure what are the important things that you need to track what data are you going to use to actually drive performance improvement across your organization. Um, and there are models out there that you can use. Um, quite often the answer is picking out the bits that are relevant to you and having a kind of a hybrid model that uses the best of those or uses what's practical for you to do. It's very hard as mentioned to switch from going from happy sheets to a you know, a full um, Kirkpatrick Phillips, for example. So, um, yeah, baby steps. And, and, I, and, and on the subject of choosing models, there's lots of discussions. And actually, do you know what? I don't think it matters so much the model that you use, because if you don't do a baseline measure, if you don't do a needs analysis beforehand, how the heck does any model sort of help you anyway? And I think what, what you were saying about it, it's got to be context specific as well about your organization, about what is it important that we measure so that we can show the performance improvements. And so, so, you know, I see all these debates about all the different models and everything. And actually, you know what, Kirkpatrick is very serviceable. But if you don't do any baseline, then no model's going to help you. Exactly. Because to demonstrate um, success, you've got to demonstrate some progress. So that baselining gives you your starting point. 
it then also gives you your direction for what needs to be addressed. So you can pick off very specifically, is it a case of, um, you know, if it's face-to-face, -face, is attendance low? Why is attendance low? You can zoom in and see, are people not getting the memo? Why are they not showing up? Is it not compelling enough a reason to want to do it? You start to get those answers just from performing that initial measurement. It, it, it lays out to you and gives you indicators and waypoints on what your strategy should be. And that ability to break it down um, and be able to show progression. You're not going to solve the problem in one hit, but you're able to then show progress towards the solution to the problem. Makes it more manageable. Okay, so on to our final question of this final part of the three-part podcast. And this is a few quick tips about analytics insight. Um, Chris, let's go to you first. Uh, what's your, what are your tips for, for, you know, really getting under the skin of analytics, some maybe uh, ideas to get started if you're not really using learning analytics much or, or, or what are your three best uh, ideas for a good insight into learning analytics in L&D? So I would always start with be curious with stakeholders. So um, if you align with the right people, uh, they will also steer you to, um, to get the right measures and where to, where to start. Um, the second tip would be um, use numbers, quantitative data to highlight areas for concern. So look for high points, low points, use spreadsheets, use just simple RAG analysis to identify where to look, that's red, amber, green. And then the third tip would be to dig deeper using some qualitative data. And depending on the numbers, you know, use surveys where people use scaling or sentiment analysis. Um, if small numbers, they could use focus groups where obviously, you, you know, if you've got a small group, you can analyze the data more easily. But those are my top tips. Be curious with stakeholders use quantitative data to highlight areas of concern and then dig deeper with qualitative data and maybe back up with some quantitative again. But that's only if you're nerdy when it comes to numbers. Thanks, Chris. Um, some great tips there, Steve. Um, what have you got in the tips front? Okay. Um, trying to boil this down into just three. <laughs> it's tricky, but um, I've got um, define your important metrics. Um, so basically ones that mean something outside of L&D, because if you can show uh, achievement towards those, it, it means something to other people. Um, engagement is often a good one. You know, engagement is a word that's used outside of L&D. If you can define metrics that can measure engagement, um, then that's a good place to start. But either way, define the important ones. The next one is um, talk to your marketing department. Um, uh, digital marketing use um, funnels, metrics, stats, analytics, um, you know, lead stages, social proof. They harvest social proof, which is one of the key things of driving engagement is showing how other people, you know, their response to it. But marketing teams and digital marketing teams will use all of these methods. These methods are transferable across to, to L&D. So talk to them and see about, you know, setting up dashboards or using spreadsheets and using the data to track the important stuff as you're moving people through their L&D program. Um, and the last one, I guess, is, you know, it can be quite overwhelming doing all of this stuff. So just start small. Just get used to ripping the Band-Aid off, being objective, uh, you know, find out where, where you're at 
and then be able to show progress and report success, even if it's just little wins, just those small increments of progress towards improvement. Um, yeah, don't try and bite off too much in one go. Perfect. Start small. It's good advice. People seem to be, can often get quite daunted. I, I include myself in this with, with um, various things as well, quite, quite daunted by taking on these uh, large projects or big new ideas. So yeah, start small and build from there. Excellent stuff. Um, this, is, this is it. This is the final part of uh, our three-part podcast. It just remains really for me to uh, say thanks ever so much, Chris and Steve, both for your time. Uh, it's been really insightful. We've covered a lot in these three episodes and uh, I'll speak to you both very soon. It's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot, John. Thanks, John. That's great. And thanks, Chris. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Steve.